You know, I struggle at times with uh, deciding what stories I'm going to share each Sunday. And I often try to start every message with a story, if you haven't picked up on that. And usually I try to pick something that is a little bit lighthearted, something that it makes us smile, makes us laugh. And I was trying to think about what story I was going to tell today. And it's one that I've told before, but I need to be honest with you. It's not a story that I can laugh about. It's not a story that puts a smile on my face per se, but I think it's a story that encompasses the difficulty of life and the tragedies that we oftentimes face. It's a simple story in my own life of something that happened in my family before we had any children and when Michaela specifically was working with horses. As many of you know, my wife is a horse trainer and she trains people and trains horses and sometimes the horses are easier than the people, but she loves what she does. And if any of you have spent any time with horses, you would really very quickly be able to understand just how beautiful they are. How they are really set apart in some ways from all other created animals that we come to enjoy. There's this majestic beauty. There's this sense of intelligence. There's this personality that can come out that can really captivate and touch our minds and our eyes. If you haven't ever seen, I think one of the most beautiful sights that you can see is horses just running in a field. So beautiful. Well, my wife, years ago, was working at a barn. She had a, a school, a horse training school that she was a part of. And at that time, I was still in seminary, and we probably had more horses than I knew what to do with. And oftentimes, I would jokingly say, even though it's probably a reality, that the horses ate better than I did. And especially as a suffering student in grad school, my horses got new shoes every eight weeks. I think I was working on every eight years for my shoes, but these horses got shoes every eight weeks. Michaela took very good care of our horses. Well, there was one horse, though, in particular at the barn that we were at that was kind of off to a corner. And this horse had not been visited by its owner for weeks and months. And that time started to grow, and unfortunately, this horse's neglect started to show. And it was coming into, coming into fall, into winter, and the concerns started to bubble up in my wife's mind where she realized that this horse most likely would not make it through the winter. Its coat wasn't thick enough, it didn't come in well, and it didn't have enough meat on its bones to be able to handle the weather. And we knew for certain that the owners were not going to come out to try to care for this animal in fattening it up or putting a blanket on it. So realizing that someone had to do something, my wife decided to make a difference. Now, of course, she came and asked me, which was more like telling me, and I was struggling with it all along because for us, every single, not just dollar, but penny made a difference. 
we had to buy some supplies, including some grain, in order to make sure that this horse was taken care of because it became so much of a runt of, the, of this pack in some ways that it oftentimes got the least amount of food from all the other horses. Well, under my wife's care, the horse made it all the way through the winter months and began to pack on some weight. To where finally my wife came and asked me another question and asked me specifically if we could take this horse on ourselves. I asked her, of course, what that was going to cost, and the amount was $200. That might as well have been $2,000 or $20,000 because those numbers felt that big at that time. But I realized that she felt very firmly about this and there was going to be no convincing her otherwise and that pay, paying $200 would be cheaper than counseling. <laughs> so I said yes. We had thankfully gotten Apache into our care, the name of the horse, and a week went by and it just seemed like everything was perfect. It seemed like this horse in some ways was getting his Cinderella story. That he went from rags to having a good life with a good home, with a good family that would love this horse. But not even two weeks in, this horse suffers from something called colic. And just like that, in the turning of events, within 10 hours of this horse dealing with colic, we have to put him down, and he dies. Now, my wife, in trying to care for this horse in those hours, brought herself to complete exhaustion, where she literally passed out on the floor, and I had to take care of this horse, as well as these medical bills that were rising now into the thousands. Not knowing and understanding what to do I just remember going home after the vet put down the horse and I'm looking at this horse as it's taking its final breath and I take off the bridle of the horse and I bring the bridle home in my hands to see Michaela and she's weeping and I'm weeping and while I understand that it's a horse and I understand it's not a person and we have our stories in our lives that I think represent those greater tragedies in many ways. The question that I felt like we wrestled with and I think it's one that even though you weren't a part of this story that you can think about in your own is why would God allow that to happen? It was just so hard to understand, and in some ways it still is. I mean, this, this animal was neglected, it was abused, it needed someone to love it, and we want it to be that person. And not only that, but it just seemed like it was the perfect end to its story for it to enter into our care, and for us to provide for it and love it and bring it along, but yet within flip of a moment, a flip of a switch, things go into a t totally different direction. 
And maybe you're reflecting on your own life, maybe for circumstances present or past, and you're wondering those same questions. You're asking yourself, Lord, I just do not understand the timing. I just do not understand how this is meant to bring about good or the good that you intend for me. Why, God? Well, today I think we're going to explore someone's situation who could very much say the same. Because we have all have had moments in our lives where we've built up expectations. And life doesn't pan out the way that we imagine. And instead what's replaced is complete hurt and questions of our faith in the person of God, which is why I've titled today's message, Expectations That Fail Us. So if you would, turn your Bibles to John chapter 11. We're going to be in the whole entire chapter today, so I'll do my best to go as quickly as we can. But we're going to be looking at the story of Lazarus. Now, I'm sure if I were to ask you to raise your hands, if you've heard of the story of Lazarus before, most of your hands would probably go up in the room. So I'm going to kind of, in some ways, state the obvious for many. That the story of Lazarus is a powerful story of a person who dies that Jesus brings back to life. But I want to point something out that's very important. So please, listen closely to what I'm about to say. You see, I think that oftentimes when we read scripture, we read scripture with the benefit of hindsight. Specifically, when we look at scripture, we understand where things are going. Or because we've heard a story in the past, we know that it might have a better ending or an ending that we find favorable. But because of that, one of the problems that we end up not realizing is that we fail to see that these are real people living in real times with real expectations in real issues at play. And as a result, we can miss out on the depth of God's word. So as I read John chapter 11, I am inviting you now to place yourself, not just mentally, but emotionally into the narrative. And I want you to ask as we go through what that might have felt like. Because I think if we do this, we can grow from God's word and allow God's word to have a deeper impact in our lives, amen? So as I said, we're looking at the person of Lazarus. So John chapter 11, Um, I'm gonna go ahead and flip there myself. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, And now listen very carefully to what Jesus says. And in fact, just read it with me. This sickness will not end in death. 
No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. So is this sickness going to end in death? No, it's for God's glory. So we find out that this man is named Lazarus, that Jesus loves him, and that he's sick. But who really is Lazarus? Who is Lazarus? Lazarus, from this text, is described as the brother of Mary and Martha. That famous story of of Mary and Martha, right? Mary washing the feet of Jesus, or being at the feet of Jesus, and Martha being the busybody. This is their brother. Now, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, they live in this town called Bethany, and I'll put Bethany on the map for you. Now, Bethany is very, very close. It's in the region of Judea, and it's very close to Jerusalem. This is very important as we understand what's about to unfold in the rest of this week as we're in Holy Week. Now, Bethany is very close to Jerusalem, and Jesus at this time is in a totally different region. He's in the Transjordan area, far away from Mary and Martha and Lazarus as well. So Mary, Martha, send off a messenger to go and get Jesus to let him know what's going on. Now, if you've read the previous chapters from John chapter 11, then you would know what? That when you hang around Jesus... Some amazing things typically happen. So they're obviously sending a messenger off to Jesus for what type of goal? To hopefully have something amazing happen and for Jesus to come and do what? Bring healing to Lazarus as he's done in the past for other people. The lame, the blind, the sick. So Mary and Martha are sending off that messenger to Jesus in order to change the history of the events. And Jesus boldly, without even being there, says what about Lazarus? That he will not die. That this will not end in death. But let's look really just a little bit further and let's look at verse 6. What does it say specifically in verse 6? In verse 6 it says this, So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. What? Does that make any sense? I don't know about you, but if I found out that somebody that I love, because that's how scripture describes it, was sick, then I would do whatever it would take to make sure that I could immediately help out that person. You know, I remember years ago when I was dealing with an intestinal disease that the Lord eventually healed me from, I remember we were in a difficult situation where I couldn't get the medicine that I needed. And I remember my mom so vividly in that season of life doing whatever it took, calling pharmaceutical company after pharmaceutical company, calling different gastroenterologists to see if they had sample drugs, and doing whatever it took in order for my life to just be that much better. And now as a parent, I cannot help but think that if one of my little boys is sick, that I will do whatever it takes. I will run as fast as I can, and I will go to them as quickly as possible in order to be there. So why does Jesus Jesus 
stay because if you ask me when I think about what it means to love somebody, I think about love not just through the words that are spoken but the deeds that are done. And for Jesus to just stay put makes no sense to me. But chances are you've experienced that kind of Jesus before. Where you hear a pastor like myself say, God loves you, brother. God loves you, sister. Which can at times be the wrong thing to say when someone's suffering. But you feel like experientially God is completely silent. And here we see Jesus saying that he loves him, that his sickness is not going to end in death, but yet he waits around two full days. And what happens in that time period of Jesus waiting around? Well, it says in John chapter 11, that Lazarus ends up passing away. And it's after he passes away that Jesus starts to get into motion and starts to do what you expected him to do all along. But I have another important question for you that I need to ask. Jesus said that it wasn't going to end in death, but yet what happened? Lazarus dies. So is God a liar? Is Jesus a liar? And I think in very many ways, this is at the heart of what today's message is about. Because oftentimes, it is hard to understand, or at least it could be difficult during different seasons to understand exactly what God is doing and the reasons behind it. See, Jesus says that he will not die, but and then he ends up dying. Jesus says that he loves him, but and then he ends up hanging around just a couple extra days. So God, what is going on here? Because you see, I believe that our expectations change the way that we see the Lord. And when the Lord doesn't get, meet our expectations, then it does what? It causes there to be doubt in our faith. It causes us to struggle and wrestle with the God that we so desperately want to believe in. And church, I'm, I know that for many of you, there have been a time or two when that has been your exact story, where you have also wrestled with God giving you a word, but and then realizing that what you see in front of you is not what you expected, that there is a disconnect between what God said and the reality that you're living in. Our expectations can change the way that we see the Lord. But in these times that we're tempted to doubt God, we need to be mindful of his character. And according to God's word, according to 1 John 4, 8, it tells us 
that God is love, which means that everything that he does is rooted in what? Is rooted in his love. Another way that you could say that is that everything that he does is contingent upon God's love, upon his edict of love, which means that even in this moment, even when it doesn't look like things are making sense for Lazarus in this situation, God's love is operating in a way that we don't understand but is 100% driven by his love. C.S. Lewis says this, imagine a set of people all living in the same building. Half of them think it is a hotel. The other half think it is a prison. Those who think it a hotel might regard it quite intolerable. And those who thought it was a prison might decide that it was really surprisingly comfortable. If you think of this world as a place intended simply for our happiness, you find it quite intolerable. Think of it as a place of training and correction, and it's not so bad. He says this because so often the expectations that we set up have a way that when the Lord does not deliver in the ways that we expect of wrecking us. But let's continue here and see what happens next. It says in verse 17 that on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, and now I want you to read this with, with, with the due credit that this deserves. This is a woman that just lost someone very dear from her, to her. So she's saying this most likely with tears in her eyes. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know, I get it, I know. He will rise in the resurrection in the last day. And Jesus very powerfully tells her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah the son of God, who is to come into this world. Now I read this dialogue because it's so important. You see, they were literally in the presence of Jesus. They literally got to see some of the world's greatest miracles up until that point. But here's the reality. Here's the comparison that I want to draw. Is that even though she literally most likely got to see so many things happen. God move. the The lame walk. The blind see. And all these wonderful things that would just blow our minds. In this moment, she still, in some ways, limited God. Why? Because Jesus was about to perform the greatest miracle that people had witnessed in that time. And he's about to usher that in through the power of the Holy Spirit. And yet, she puts the Lord in a box. And when he says that he will be resurrected... 
She just hears what? Her version of her theology. She limits the Lord in realizing just how great and powerful he is. And church, that is the reality that I think we live in oftentimes. We limit God. We don't realize it how often we do it. But we oftentimes put God in a box. And when God can do greater, we think that he can do less. And in sometimes we don't even ask him because we don't even think it's possible. But God is a God of not just the possible, but of what? the impossible and he can turn a situation and move it into a radically different direction than whatever we expected we simply at times just need to ask and don't get me wrong I'm not saying that that is a magic wand where it's just you wave it and everything is fixed because that is not always the reality but we at the very least need to be able to allow the God who can do some remarkable things to be a part of our lives, amen? Church, do you want God to be a part of your lives? Do you want there to be things that you experience because of his glory? You guys are quiet today, and I, I need a little bit more back from y'all. Thank you. Thank you. So what happens next? Well, Mary very similarly to Martha, comes and has a dialogue with her. And once again, Lord, if you would have been here, you would have been able to heal him. And Jesus is setting it all up. And what happens next is is rather remarkable. What happens next is Jesus follows the people out and and all the people are mourning and and, and struggling. And and it says that that Jesus literally grows sorrowful for them. And in verse 35, the the shortest verse in all of scripture comes up and it simply says this. John 11, 35. Jesus wept. Now, scholars are pretty divided on why Jesus wept. Some believe that Jesus wept because he had great compassion on them, that he saw them in their mourning, and he wept out of sorrow for their sorrow. Because why would Jesus weep? I mean, think about it. He knows what's about to happen next, right? He knows that he's about to do some things, That this sickness is not going to end in death, but yet he still weeps for the people. Now there's another view that some scholars take. And that other view is is that Jesus is weeping not because he feels their sorrow, but rather because he sees them in a state of sorrow that is unfitting for a believer. Specifically, they're weeping like the world, and they're not weeping like people of victory. You know, death is a hard thing, and I do not want to make light of that, especially even considering the last couple of weeks with a congregant of ours passing away. 
But the truth is, is that even though death is a time of mourning, even though it is okay to have grief in death, to think about what has been lost, the reality is, church, that you and I, that if we are believers, we do not weep like the world, amen? Why do we not weep like the world? Because we believe in a resurrection. We believe that Christ has conquered the grave. And for that reason, everything has changed. Death has lost its sting. So that when a believer goes to be with the Lord, that is exactly what happens. They're with the Lord. They're out of a place of suffering. There is no more pain. There is no more sorrow in the presence of God. And they get to be in a state of glory. So why Jesus is weeping? Maybe it's because of that. Maybe it's because of their sorrow. I don't understand. I don't see a reason why I can't be both. But that still encourages me. Because why? Because it means to me that even though Jesus knows the end result, he still shows us his tears his compassion, his love, even in the midst of our own suffering, even when he knows that we're all about to be celebrating. And that's the kind of God we serve. But Jesus doesn't leave the story there. Jesus has some other plans for Lazarus. And what Jesus does after weeping is he goes up to Lazarus's grave and he calls for that stone that would entomb the people. He calls for that to be moved and he peers into that place and into there he calls out and he says, Lazarus, to get up. And thankfully, he said one name, because if not, everybody probably would have gotten up in that moment. But he says, Lazarus, get up. And what starts to happen? The things start to change around them. And all of a sudden, Lazarus starts to hop out of there, wrapped up as he were. And he is alive. And now everything starts to come into an understanding. Because you see, if you didn't know this, in the rabbinical tradition, they believed that after a person died, their body would hover around for a few days. And that after those few days, three days in particular, after those three days were over, then that person was not just dead, they were dead dead. That means there was no hope for them to be able to come back to life. So when Jesus waited two extra days, he was in some ways proving without a shadow of a doubt that the Lord would be at work here. That Lazarus wasn't just faking it, that there wasn't some other explanation, but that Lazarus was dead, dead, but God was going to do what? He was going to make him alive. And the reason why I picked this message for this week before Easter is because in very many ways, this was the dress rehearsal for Easter. Because what Jesus was about to do was going to be very similar to this. He was going to die. He was going to be entombed. And then on the third day, he was going to come back to life. And he's showing them just 
a glimpse of God's power. But Jesus' death, what he went through was much more than what Lazarus went through. And in that moment, everybody is in shock. Everybody is in awe. And the reality sets in that God's plans were always in motion. You see, our expectations may fail us in life. We may expect things to happen in a certain order of events, a certain timeline of things. And when the Lord doesn't achieve that for us, we become downtrodden. But the reality is, and this is the big idea, this is what I want you guys to get taken to your heads and take home today and live out, is this truth that God will not fail you. Though your expectations may at times feel like they are failing, the reality is is that God will not fail you. Amen? Amen. That is a truth that we can always hold ourselves to, that in the Lord there is victory in our lives. And I want to live as a person of victory. Yes, I might have trials. Yes, there might things be things that come my way that cause me to buckle or cause me to weaken. But in those moments of life, I need to continue to hold God up and say, Lord, I trust you. Because you see, we oftentimes run astray into two different categories. Where because we're so afraid of God failing to meet our expectations, we offer no plans for life. Or because maybe we want God to show up, we do too many plans in life. But the truth is, is that we just need to live a little bit like this where we ask the Lord to be a part of our lives and where we trust him regardless of what what we might be seeing in the physical because I believe that there is a supernatural at work. You see, Mary, Martha, they might have thought that Jesus in this moment was showing them a lack of love by waiting around. But in reality, what he was showing them was he was creating a story in them that we would be telling till today. And that's what I want over my life. I want God to create a story in and through me that they can tell well past my life. But I know that in order for that to happen, I need to live with the confidence that God will not fail you. You know, I shared the story earlier about Apache's death, and um, he didn't come back from the grave. <laughs> Let's get that clear. But what I didn't share with you is up and through, uh, up until that moment, I loved my wife very poorly when it came to her passion with horses. And in some ways, I wrongly thought, well, I'm, I'm going to be in ministry. I'm in seminary school. This is a noble cause. Horses are an animal. That's a lesser cause. And plus, they get shoes more than me. <laughs> and I never loved or understood her love for those animals. 
And here's the truth. If you're married, the truth is is that you learn very quickly that God made you a little bit different than he made your spouse. (laughs) And oftentimes marriage is an opportunity for those differences to be exposed as well as celebrated. To work through the things that allow us to have pain in the conflicts of our relationship, but also to realize that that is bringing us to a better place. And in some ways, I believe that God allowed that horse to die as sad as it was so that I would finally love and appreciate my wife a little bit more. Because it wasn't until that moment that I truly made a 180 turn and started or I know some people say sometimes 360, but that never makes sense because you just end up right back where you started. But 180 turn, I'll say, <laughs> to realizing that I needed to love my wife better. That God's ministry through her was through those animals. That God would use those animals as a means to be able to love and bless other people. And from that moment on, it, it was like I got it. I understood and I was able to support her and love her. And look, I don't want to try to even attempt what the good God can draw out from your points of pain and suffering. Because I know for many of you, it's much deeper than a farm animal passing away. I know for many of you, you have some stories that cut deep, that have left lasting scars but I want to encourage and remind you that God will never fail you and that God will always, regardless of the pain that we are experiencing, be your source of strength, be your source of comfort, be the one that meets you in those crossroads to make something beautiful out of the situation you're going through. He's not necessarily the cause of your pain, but he'll walk you through it. And he'll allow that pain to be brought to glory, just as he did for Lazarus. He brought his pain and he brought glory through it. Let's bring glory to God through the lives that we live, amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for these sacred, important times to be able to gather as your people. I pray, Father, for just everybody in here. I know, Father, there's moments in life where our expectations fail us, but ultimately, Lord, you 